guys love me? You love me? Okay. You've been around, around me long enough to know me and to know that there's some days that I get up here to preach or whether it's been at the park or whether it's been in my living room. Some of you were with us in the living room days and, and in the back room office sitting around a coffee table with coffee cake days. And you know that there's some days that I desire. I, I, I literally go to the father and I'm like, hey, listen, today, can you just maybe give me something with a little bit of light, with a little bit of light, but like some like a, a bit of a rainbow, something a bit more jolly is probably the word. And then in process during the week, as I'm studying and reading, there's this conviction that falls on me. And there's something that I'm reminded of when I go through my Bible, and it's this. That it's only in the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where God gives us the intention that he has for man and creating man. But it's in the remainder of the Bible that it's us running away from him. 1,500 years of God's word, 66 books, numerous authors of man running away from God. And God being a constant in our lives, even when we're inconsistent. We're in the series right now called Letters to the Church. And in every week that we've hit so far, which has only been two weeks, I don't know about you, but does it feel like we've been here for like two months? All right, but hold on, because there's literally seven letters, so that's seven weeks. So don't get tired of it yet. We're literally, we're just in week three. So bear with me. And I ask you if you love me for a reason. Because I think today is going to hit us really heavy. Today's subtitle is called the Gray Zone Church. But let me preface this and the message and everything by saying, this is not a disclaimer, but I just want to preface what I'm about to say by saying this. It's not my fault that this is the next letter. After last Sunday's message, I had a couple of people come up to me and ask me, you preached that for me, didn't you? And I said, it's not my fault. It was the next letter. So this next letter just happens to fall at the right time in the right place. And we're going to ask the Father to allow us the opportunity to receive what we need to receive from this message. Perhaps not everything that I'm going to share today is regarding you or your life or your current situation with the Lord. And that is okay. That is okay because it's not about you. But it might be about somebody in this room. And so could we ask that the Lord do his work in their hearts today? The gray zone church letters, the gray zone church, part of letters to the church series. In the first week, we went through Revelations chapter two, the verse, the first couple of verses, and we discussed the Ephesians, the church of Ephesus. And we saw the importance that God put on being a good church, being good people, but never forgetting our first love. The importance of keeping a very intentional and passionate love with God. Then we moved on to last week, which seemed like a month ago. But last week was the relentless church where we got to explore how Jesus applauded the work of our brothers and sisters in a church called Smyrna, which exists today and is called Izmira, over in where? Asia Minor, which is modern day. All right, we're gonna get this by the end of the series. The church in Smyrna showed us what it was to love God, right? We went from no love or limited love in Ephesus to a church that loved him so passionately 
that they welcomed and they sat in suffering because that was the level of love that they had for God. At this point, just for historical context, Jesus has already gone. These letters are being written, they're being penned. Jesus's words penned through John, one of the apostles' hands. Okay, I want to make sure you're going to hear me say Jesus a lot. And he said, and he did say it. It was just penned by John while on an island called Patmos. He was one of the few that didn't lose his life because of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was actually exiled to an island called Patmos. If you missed last Wednesday, by the way, um, our Bible study Impact Wednesday, it was, it got a little crazy. It got a little crazy. And so I welcome you to join us again this Wednesday. Um, Last Wednesday, what we did was I felt like the Lord, since I was leading the last Bible study, I felt like the Lord was leading us into studying a bit more of the visions and revelation that are in the book of Revelation, particularly in the 13th chapter of Revelation, where we see a beast with seven heads come out of the water. And it's all symbolic. It's not meant to be scary, but people see the book of Revelation and get a little afraid of it because there's a lot going on. And so I invite you, I invite you to log in on Wednesdays and study with us in this season. Um, Will you open up your Bibles to the second chapter? Once again, we're still in the second chapter of the book of Revelation. We're going to be in verse 12 to 17 today. Thank you so much. Verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. They know to bring me water because I was choking last week. As you look for that, if you're a first-time visitor, thank you so much for being with us today. I hope you feel warm and welcome and with family. It's an honor to have you with us. And to our family on Facebook and Zoom, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to to join us. Revelations chapter 2, verse 12, and it reads like this. It says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, meaning the leader of the church in Pergamum, write. This is Jesus telling John. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He's speaking about himself, Jesus. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. That's the scary part of this. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon. And war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, it feels like we read at least an entire chapter of the book of Revelation. We just read five verses. 
That's how much content there are in these letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor. So what do we know about Pergamum? Pergamum also has some other names. Pergamos, which ends in M-O-S. Also Pergamon, which eggs in ends in M-O-N. So when you hear perhaps the church of Pergamos, church of Pergamon, same church. Different pronunciations, different translations, because we're speaking in English and they didn't speak much English in that city back then. All right, so today, for the sake of us moving forward and me using the translation, the English Standard Version, the Church of Pergamum. What do we know about Pergamum? It was just 42, 49 miles, excuse me, north of Smyrna. So we're moving further inland, right? Ephesians was right on the water. Then you go 30 miles north, you have Smyrna. Northeast, 49 miles, you are now in Pergamum. It's a tough one. Pergamum is probably the hardest one. One of the things that Pergamum was known for in this season was in the season of Asia Minor, which no longer exists today as Asia Minor, instead it's Turkey, was the persecution of the church. But let me explain to you historically what's happening here. The Roman Empire was taking over lands that weren't belonging to them. So through war, they were conquering lands in all of this portion, portion of Asia Minor and also Europe. But in this season, I feel like today when we think about Rome and the Roman Empire, what do you think about? What's something you think about when you think Rome? The Catholic Church. It's the first thing that comes to us, right? Something religion-oriented, the Catholic Church. But what's happening here is that there was no Catholic Church. Rome was a very powerful empire, the most powerful the, word, the world had seen to date because of their ability to conquer all the way down to Africa and up into Asia. But they had no religion. They had religious cults that were based on God's lowercase g that they had created. And the foremost of the gods that they had created was a man. Whoever was at the helm of the empire at that time, who was called, not king, but Caesar. Caesar was God. Caesar was Lord. And if you remember, the reason for why Smyrna was persecuted was because they refused to accept that Caesar was Lord. The same thing happened here in Pergamum that happened in Smyrna. The difference was that Pergamum was seen as a city that the Roman Empire called a great city. The great city of Pergamum. Why was it called the great city of Pergamum? Because it was the first place that the Roman Empire had established a temple of worship towards Caesar. There's a difference there. Because the Roman Empire that was conquering and was running the area of Smyrna simply told them we need you to worship Caesar but in Pergamum there was the first temple of worship to Caesar which meant that a lot of the attention from the Roman Empire because whoever was king at that time whoever was emperor Caesar at that time they were trained to know that they were to receive all of the worship and all of the praise from the people. They were taught that they were God on earth, God's chosen for this earth. So you can imagine when you were required to worship and you denied worshiping, you would lose your life. 
you would be set aside. And like we shared last week, Jews were unaccepted for some reason, right? And it's all part of a perfect plan that probably makes little sense. Judaism was accepted by the Roman Empire. But this was all part of God's plan to show the faithfulness of the people that were now choosing to follow him. So Pergamum was one of those churches. Christianity by no means, by no means, again, you just replied that when you think Rome, you think the Catholic Church, who believes that Christ died and was resurrected. But Christianity at this time, even though in Rome, and even though part of the Roman Empire was not accepted, this is important for you to understand, not accepted as a religious practice as the time, which is why Jesus then says, if you read if we go back to verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He's reminding the church of Pergamum, speaking to the pastor of that church. Hey, I want you to know that I know where you are. I'm not confused about the fact that you are a church, that you are leading believers in a place that belongs to Satan himself. So he's saying here that Caesar and the Roman Empire Hold what throne? The throne of Satan. The opposition. If you're a new believer, these are words that are real to our life. These are words that are real in the spiritual. Satan. Devil. The opposition to everything that is good in God. He was referring, Jesus, referring to the fact that this great pagan temple existed in Pergamum. He was recognizing that I know where you live and I know that you are surrounded by Satan's throne but there's an approval that Jesus gives in this letter right because in every letter he gives some approval to these churches and he says I see the endurance that you have I'm acknowledging the suffering like your brothers in Smyrna that you have put forth. Jesus celebrated Pergamum for enduring the persecution of the Roman Empire still in verse 13. The church in Pergamum also had a martyr, which we just read about, Antipas. We don't know much about Antipas, but all we need to know about him is that Jesus is recognizing that he died as a martyr for the faith. Do we all know what martyr means? Martyr means that he gave himself up in sacrifice, refusing to accept Caesar as Lord, and saw everything worth him saying, I believe in Jesus and I am willing to die. Would you do that today? Would you do that today? It's the beauty of the book of Revelation because when you're studying, and we're not going to do that right now, I'm just going to kind of breeze through it and leave you with a teaser. The tribulation is a time of seven years where all that is wrath will overcome the church of Jesus. What's going to happen during these times, and this can be contested by different theologies and different ideologies, excuse me, about when the rapture is going to happen. But it is my understanding of scripture that we don't leave before the wrath comes. And instead, our life of persecution in many different ways, and especially so, this is what the problem is. When we think about American Christianity, we almost equate it to the American dream. 
that like it's something cushy, but you need to understand that in other parts of this world, there are brothers and sisters of ours who claim to believe the same thing we believe in, who suffer in death and persecution and being jailed today, the 18th of October in 2020. While we have the freedom to sit in the temple of God, in the house of worship, like the gathering, and be able to freely smile and move and claim Jesus, 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 and learn about him passionately, there are brothers and sisters of ours who can't do this. They can't do it online. They can't do it in person. They can't do it in jail. And they are martyring themselves because they truly believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I remind you of this often because I need you to understand that our comfort as Christians in America is not, is not like there aren't those that are joined in that comfort in other parts of this world. Other developed countries, China, the church is completely underground, constantly persecuted, their buildings knocked down, but you look on TV and China is this superpower of the world and they are. But just like the Roman Empire, they exercise suffering and oppression over the believers of Jesus Christ, which leads me as a believer of Jesus and a, as a preacher of the gospel to understand that what I believe in is contested so often because it's got to have some type of content. What we believe as believers, what we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of God, part of the Holy Trinity, must have some truth behind it because otherwise the world wouldn't hate it for as long as it has. The beautiful thing about these letters that we're reading through every week is that although they were written thousands of years ago, somehow they speak to us today. And we're here, the letters being written to a specific church in Pergamum. I believe that this is speaking to the church of the world in 2020. Because everything that we've seen in these letters, and we're about to go deeper into it, applies to us today. So as amazing as these things that God is giving approval for, right? So what we see in these letters is approval, accusation, and admonition, which means a call to action. So we've seen his approval. Congratulations. You've endured. You've suffered for my name. Antipas has given himself as a martyr. But there's something that's different from Pergamum that Smyrna didn't get. If you remember, Smyrna was God encouraging them. But what didn't he have for Smyrna? He didn't have accusation. He had, he, I'm sure he could have found something to complain about, but in the letter to Smyrna, he did not complain about anything regarding Smyrna. But he does complain once again about Pergamum. And this is what he says. Jesus didn't have, I'm going to just read this again. Jesus didn't have correction for Smyrna in John's letter, but he does have correction for Pergamum. And once again, I see it as a very valid, very alive and valid correction for today's modern church the first thing that jesus brings up is that open quotations in verse 14 you have some there who hold the teaching of balaam who taught balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality we're in verse 14 does anybody know the story of balaam no perfect we're gonna learn it today if you go back, this is the meat and potatoes of what we're going to share about today. This was a church 
Pergamum who mostly resisted Rome and their scare tactics, but there were those who cared more for comfort, comfort and compromise than steadfast obedience. Comfort and compromise as opposed, as opposed to steadfast obedience. Balaam was a prophet in the early book of Numbers who was considered a true prophet of God. So he was a prophet. Write that down. Balaam, B-A-L-A-A-M, a prophet of God. He was charged. He was ordered to speak to the people of Israel during the reign of King Balak. He was a king of a region called Moab. So what was happening here was that King Balak was afraid as the tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel moved past his nation, his empire called Moab. And because he was so afraid, he heard of one man who was a prophet of God over the Israelites, Balaam. And King Balak went to Balaam, called him, and offered him money to help him take down the Israelites. And guess what happened? Balaam accepted. He sold everything that God had given to him and prostituted his, prostituted his gift for money. God himself spoke to him, and he gave it all up for money. And so part of the deal was, I'll pay you this money. I'll give you the comforts that your flesh is desiring, but I need you to help me take down God's people. How little King Balak knew God. Time after time, Balaam tells King uh, Balak what to do, and the curses that he's supposedly given unto the people keep blessing them. Everything he tells them to do ends up blessing the Israelites more. It wasn't working. But remember, Balaam knew God. And what he knew about God was that God is a jealous God. So what he advises the king to do is find a way to send some beautiful women into Israel, into the Israelites, into the camps, and tempt them and offer them sacrifices, food from the altars, things perhaps they've never eaten, offer them riches from the altar and watch what happens. And this is what the book of Numbers tells us happens. In Numbers, we see that God's wrath, right? Because these were his people and they had turned away from him one more time, which we already studied a bunch of times. He ends up killing 24,000 of them. He had been protecting them this entire time from the curses that this supposed prophet of God was throwing against them. But they allowed themselves to be, this is the word of the day, distracted. And it led to 24,000 of them having to die. Of all the theological terms I can give you today, the one I want you to write down is distracted. This is the doctrine that some of the church of Pergamum was living. A doctrine that said that it was okay to say you're a Christian, but still enjoy the spoils of sin. To eat both from the table of God, but also from the table of Satan. This is why I'm saying that this applies to us today. 
And by us, I don't mean just the gathering. I'm not excluding the gathering. I'm including the gathering, but also saying the kingdom of God on earth today. We think that we can call ourselves Christians by mouth, but we can still enjoy the spoils from the table of Satan. I'm not going to give you specifics regarding that because I think we each struggle with what those spoils are. What is it that's distracting you today? The way that this king overcame these Israelites that were being blessed when they were supposed to be cursed by Balaam was by pretending to be a good neighbor, which we talk about a lot. So he made friends with them. And he said, well, if you can't beat them, we'll join them. And while they're join, joining them, the, the walls were let down, the guards were put down, and they started celebrating and enjoying with what the Roman Empire had much of. I'm sorry, the, the Moabites had much of. Altars filled with offerings of food and drink and women and dancing, earthly pleasures. Balaam knew that this would be the one thing that would remove the blessing from them and bring to them again death, 24,000. Now, the world didn't have a population like it does today. I want you to understand this. If, we, if anything, if anyone took a blow today of 24,000 people, it would be on the news. 24,000 of these men of Israel lost their life because they were distracted. The church of Pergamum allowed themselves to be distracted by the good life when what God had ordained for them was holy suffering. Holy suffering, and yes, holy suffering is a thing. These people existed. They lived in Pergamum for a reason. God had called for there to be a church in Pergamum for a reason, just like it was in Smyrna. Smyrna, remember, the name Smyrna meant bitter, which made sense for there to be a church there to provide hope. Pergamum was the same. What God had ordained was holy suffering for his sake. But they chose the good life. Distraction will rob you from the fullness of God's favor and his presence. It will rob you from heaven itself. Distraction. Every time you give into your temptation, you are making that thing that's tempted, you're making that thing that's tempted you, your God, with a lowercase g. And the God over your life. But remember, God is a jealous God, right? Which is why he had to kill those 24,000 people out of his wrath. And I shared this week that God is not just a love of a God of love and passion and mercy. He is everything that is love, everything that is compassion, everything that is enduring and steadfast love for us, right? We, we talked about this a few weeks ago, agape love. But his love contains correction. His love contains wrath and anger because he's a jealous God. He made you for a reason. He made you, listen to me, friend. He made you for a reason. So when you do things that break his heart, he is entitled to provide wrath. And that's where I think, like spoiled children, we get thrown back. Because when he is upset at the way we're living our lives, when he's ordained something different for us, we say that he's unfair. Why would a God so love? Because he's God. 
do you not know who you say you serve? If you're a person of color or any parent of any color, any background, any ethnicity, any nation, you know that when mom and dad say something, it has to be done. They have the authority over your life to dictate what they need from you in a season of being a child. Can you imagine in your parent getting mad at you for not doing what they've asked you to do and then being like, how could a dad who says he loves me so much hit me because I misbehaved? I don't get it. The same thing happens with God. And in this case, 24,000 people lost their life in this doctrine that was being taught. So Jesus is accusing them. This is the same thing you're teaching hundreds and hundreds of years later. You're teaching that it's okay to be in the church, but live a double life. They were the gray zone church because they said with their mouth that they were believers. They said that they loved Jesus. They said that they revered his name, but the way they lived, the way they lived did not match what their mouths were saying. And remember, what matters most of all was the heart. What's going on in your heart if you say that you're a believer, but you can so easily be tempted and swindled into sin? What is in your heart? Because it's the same heart that says, this beautiful woman is walking across me, or this handsome man without a shirt on is walking across me right now. But I love my wife so deeply that I can't even imagine. I can't imagine how it would break her heart. That's how we need to look at the Father. The devil has no power over us. I need you to understand this. He can't move your hand. But what he knows how to do is to distract you. He knows the things that you've been weak on. So he uses that to distract you. Do you know what killed Samson? Distraction and a nap. If you don't know the story of Samson, ask me about it. Do you know what cursed David's family? Distraction and somebody else's wife. Do you know what made Judas a traitor? Distraction and money. Do you know what kept Moses from the promised land? Distraction and anger. And let me explain that one a little bit because God told him to tap the rock so that water might flow out of it and he hid it. God's ordinance, God's requirement of you in obedience is that specific. I didn't tell you to hit the rock. I told you to tap it. You need to be keen to the voice of God to understand what he orders order your, over your life. But the point here is that you can't have your cake and eat it If you have a moment, there's a song called No Shades of Grey by Jonathan McReynolds. Beautiful song. And basically encapsulates what we're talking about here in song. You can't sit on the fence with God. He is Lord above everything. The devil dangles the pleasures of your flesh and of this earthly life to keep you from receiving that manna that we see in this final verse. To, to keep you from receiving the manna from heaven and to keep you from eternity seated next to the Father. Again, let me ask you this. 
What's your gray zone? What I've learned about my life as a human is that we've all got spaces that are gray. We all have the potential to exist in gray spaces. And I'm not saying that you don't love Jesus. I know you love Jesus. But are you sure that you're not making those gray zones your God over what God has asked of you? You can't have God and your own desires at the same time. Sometimes in God's graciousness, our desires line up with his. But you can't have both if your desire is not what he desires. How can I please God while still doing what I want to do in my flesh? I'll explain it to you right now. Easy, easy equation. You can't. I'm off my notes. But I need you to understand this. Everybody, everybody, if you're listening to me online, you can't have both. You can't eat from the table of God, which is life, which is manna from heaven. You can't eat from his table and also eat from the table of Satan. These are the accusations that went to Pergamum and these are the accusations that are headed towards us. Everything about your life has to be a demonstration that you are completely assured in your relationship with Jesus. There can't be a space. There can't, there cannot be a space where you say, God, I know what you want from me, but because this is what I desire, I'm going to go ahead and leave this. And I'm not saying that we may not fall. Because remember, Jesus was already given for our freedom. Jesus died and paid a price. But, but then Paul says, okay, but does that mean then that we go on sinning? The answer is no. You can't have eternal life and enjoy the spoils of the table of Satan and enjoy the spoils of your fleshly desires. You cannot have that. It's like, what, the 11th time I'm saying this? I need you to leave here today understanding you can't have the world and God at the same time. James 4, verse 4. If you're a friend of the world, you are an enemy to me. It's very simple. I'm going to read it to you before you say that I'm over here writing verses in the Bible. James 4, verse 4. It starts by saying, in the beautiful words of James, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, which means what? It's, it almost like, oh no, you have, you have permission. You have decisions to make. Anyone who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Which coins what we've been saying today. You can't be eating from God's table and the table of sin all at the same time. I don't know what this means to you today, but it should mean a lot. I struggled all week with this. Because there's, there's things in my life that I'm like, man. So you, you know, wow. So if perhaps my gray zone is my job. 
Maybe God tells me one day, hey, I need you to stop working, stop being a bivocational pastor, and I need you to suffer with your family, holy suffering for my sake, because I need you to give the church 1,000% of your time. And by the church, I mean you. Because at some point, each and every one of you, if you're not a first-timer or fairly new to the family, you know that we've sat with you and given you that time. And I do it with love. I'm not complaining. That's not a complaint. Right? Please understand. I'm just saying that we've taken that time to shepherd you and love you. And I'm sure you can come up with 10 other things that we could have been doing at that time. But it's what God called us to. He didn't call me to comfort. He didn't call me to be in spaces where I knew people were going to applaud me. Because if we were doing that, I guarantee you that every Sunday that I'd be preaching up here, I'd be giving you equations to be a better you. And that's just not what this is about. The better you that we're talking about today is a you that figures out your gray zone. And holds on to Jesus. But figure out your gray zones. What's your gray zone? Is it your family? Because family can keep us from Jesus. Well, I don't want to disappoint my mom. Yeah, but I've already asked you to do something. Yeah, but you know, my mom wouldn't really like that. Or my dad wouldn't really like that. So, so mom and dad are your God. Perhaps he's asking you to do something for the kingdom. But you're working and your job requires too much of you. Well, I can't, God, because on Sundays I knew you know, I'm really tired. Because... Oh, so your job is God, I desire to love you, but I can't leave this relationship. Oh, so your relationship is real. And that's fine. But understand when I am not your friend, I am your enemy. Do we really want to be enemies with the creator of the universe? I know it hurts. I know it hurts to make decisions away from the things that, get, that bring us comfort and pleasure and warmth. It's not worth making an enemy of God. And just a reminder, God also made Satan. He's that strong. Nothing is above him. So when we choose his creation, or the creation over the creator, what are we hoping to get at? What's your grace on today? Close your eyes. This accusation <laughs> to name it what the Bible has named it. This accusation is for all of us. Even your pastor standing up here sharing the gospel with you this morning, this afternoon. This is for all of us. But the beautiful thing is this. He brings accusation, but he also brought admonition. And the call to action was repent today. Today there's a chance for you to make this right before my eyes. There's a chance. You don't have to sit in this brokenness. You don't have to be my enemy forever. Repent. You're able to repent. Jesus has already paid the price. All you have to do is open your mouth and say, Lord, forgive me. Realign me with what you have for me. And then what, he, what does he um, promise to the church of Pergamum? He says, I will give you manna from heaven. And I will give you a white stone. And that white stone was basically a VIP invitation. And the only name written on that stone would be the one of the person who received it. Are you assured today that you are going to get a white stone with your name on it? 
I want everybody's eyes closed.